Welcome to the Practically Theologians podcast, making theology practical. It's the lights, isn't it? All right, whatever you want, you can start. <laughs> All right, welcome to our podcast again here at Sangre de Cristo Seminary. And today we are recording in the library since our good friend Andrew is not here and we we did not feel quite right crashing his kitchen and stealing his coffee. So here we are <laughs> drinking my coffee and having a good time. I'm just going to make quick introductions on the people who were here last time. Uh, the guy to my right in the red shirt that you can't see is Josh and I am Ferris. And over here on my left, the good-looking one, is my wife, Danette. Hi, y'all. All right. And then over here, we've got Tom Brown from, sorry, going to edit out your last name, mister. And uh, then over here, we have Nikki. And next to Nikki, there's somebody who's giggling, and your name is? Timia. All right. Okay. And over, and, oh, yes, I was going to... Let the new people introduce themselves. We kind of got an introduction on the other people last time. And uh, I'll let Danette and Jeremy introduce themselves. And we have an observer who wants to remain anonymous. So, <laughs> tell us a little about yourself over here. My name is Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> fascinating. <The end. laughs> uh, I'm a student here at Sangre de Cristo. This is my second year. I come from a uh, PCA background in Philadelphia, and what else do you want to know? Well, I suppose that's a lot, but, but that's fine for now, I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, and then, and who are you? I think I've met you before. <laughs> well, good. I'm your wife. I'm Danette, and I am a seminary, seminette. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, uh, wife of a seminary student, and yeah. Sit in on classes and having a good time. And then over here, <laughs> I'm Kimia, like I said before, and I live in Fort Collins, and I'm the girlfriend of a seminary student, and life is good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> okay, one thing we might want to do is uh, introduce what we talked about the last time we were here, just to kind of come up with a short summary and say where we're going. So... Somebody want to just throw out where we were last time, the conclusions we came to? How about no, somebody was here? I don't think anybody does. Okay. <laughs> what is truth? Yeah. What is truth is kind of the question we asked. Mm-hmm. And the conclusions we came to? What uh, God says. Yeah. So what actually is reality, according to God, is truth. Is that kind of yeah. mm-hmm. what we said? Yeah, I would say that's what we said. Kind of revealed to us in his word and... In the person of Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And general revelation, yep. etc. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of if we could sum it up, I don't know if we did the best job last time, but we come to the conclusion that we can trust God to give us an accurate revelation of himself. Uh, we don't imagine that God was trying to speak confusing gibberish in the scriptures. Um, and so we can actually read the Bible, and come to an understanding that its word is true, 
and come to somewhat of an understanding. And my understanding was where we were going to go today is really dealing with the obvious question that a lot of people ask. Um, in light of there being so many different denominations, and there's a lot of different interpretations, uh, a lot of the denominations come from people thinking they have found different doctrines in the scriptures that contradict with some other people's opinion of those scriptures. Uh, essentially, how can we know that we have arrived at the right interpretation of the scripture in light of there being so many denominations that claim the scriptures are true and can be understood? Uh, does somebody want to venture out into that? <laughs> so, I guess, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jeremy. One thing you could uh, that would be, I think, significant to address in this is: Does this say more about the Bible, the fact that there are all these different translations, or does this say more about the interpreters? Because uh, you could say you could be a math teacher answering question, uh, answering um, a math test, and get multiple answers for the same problem. You can either say, "Well, my students don't understand math properly," or you can say, "Lo and behold, math is relative." So which is the right way to approach the, quite that question? Do we say there's something different about the Bible or there's something wrong with the way we, the different uh, understandings are coming to that understanding? Good point. There so touches on the idea of meaning. Mm -hmm. Is it determined by the hearer or the audience or the reader? Or is it determined by the author or speaker? Is that kind yes. of what we're getting at there? Absolutely. Sounds good. Um, so essentially what we could come to is when we do come to these different conclusions, it's not about a lack of clarity in the scriptures or a lack of, of truth in the scriptures. It's, it's more a deficiency within me. Would everybody agree with that? Yeah, you, Ferris, are yeah. very deficient. Let's <laughs> <laughs> well, <this> I know. <laughs> yes, we are all very deficient. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be helpful to have a, a starting point from the place of history. Like, where have we been as a church in our view of the scripture? Um, so do you mean like Adam and Eve history? <laughs> I mean, I mean like church history. Okay. Like post... Uh, Post um, printing of the well, from from the end of Revelation until now, uh, where have we been in our view of the scriptures, and how we come to a right understanding? Somebody wants to say something short about part of that. Is my question clear? Yes, I just don't know if you can say something short. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess simply. In the earlier years, the authority was held in the uh, Roman Catholic Church, and then uh, with the Reformation, with Luther, uh, 1517, saying, with the 95 theses, and one of them being that uh, he had a different interpretation of certain texts than what the Church had, and uh, that's when we kind of broke away from the Church being the ultimate authority and interpreter of Scripture, and us uh, as as also the Church uh, interpreting scripture uh, from what we read and by the, the Holy Spirit within us, helping us to come to an understanding of the text. Okay. So <clears throat> the the view used to be that the, the Roman Catholic Church 
interpreted the scriptures authoritatively. So, uh, Ecclesia? Mm. I it's pronounced. That sounds yeah. good. That sounds right? Okay. All right. <laughs> Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. Right. Mm-hmm. Would have that the church, because the church decided what scripture was, it, in a way, is the source of scripture. Scripture came out of the church. So the prophets, the apostles, etc., came out of the church. And then the church decides what the canon of scripture is. And it decides, because they have an infallible interpreter in the Roman Catholic Church, not in the Eastern Orthodox, to that, not in the same way. But the Roman Catholic view, has, they have the, the Holy Roman Pope, right, that places himself in as the um, replacement Christ, as it were, the vicar of Christ, mm. who uh, the Church then can infallibly interpret Scripture at certain times. I mean, if they say something wrong, they'll say it wasn't quite... What, what do they call that? It wasn't, um, uh, there's a term for <laughs> being, they, being wrong, being infallible. <laughs> there's a term for when they're being infallible. Okay. And then popes can say other things sometimes. And they're like, and the Protestants are like, Hey, your Pope said this. And they said, well, that wasn't during that time, which it'd be more impressive if I knew that term, but mm. <laughs> 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 which no one would understand anyway. Right. The Roman Catholics would. Ah, yeah. Um, so essentially, we, in the Catholic view, all they have to do when they look at the scriptures in their mind is listen to what the church has said, and then the problem solved. Is that correct? No problem. Yeah. I think a short phrase that could be helpful is just, and correct me if you guys um, don't agree with this, but the Catholic Church um, believes that they have the authority over the word where the Protestant church says that they're under the authority of the word. Mm. Right. Um, I think that's probably a really basic way of thinking about it. Yeah. So the church is dictated by the word. It doesn't dictate the word. Mm. Um, and, and that's what we would all hold to is that we are under the authority of God's word. Um, we are to handle it and interpret it as it truly is. Uh, we, or we don't have the authority to make it say something else. Sure. You go ahead there, Josh. <laughs> I was just wondering uh, if it would be interesting or not, maybe it wouldn't be, to think of salvation and what the scriptures say about how salvation works. So God speaks and, and operates by his spirit to cause us to come to new life. James 1.18. Scripture is the source. So God speaking that's scripture is the source of life. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says the church is the source of scripture and the church is the source of life because it's working in the place of God here on earth. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And if we ever have any listeners, <laughs> and if they're Roman Catholic, they could correct me on that. But the Protestants say, no, 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 wait. Salvation comes by God through his scriptures, by his spirit. And so why would the church come before scripture? The scripture is who forms, God forms, he forms scripture by his spirit and word, forms the church by his spirit and word. It's not that the church forms his scripture. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I haven't studied that. I just thought about that Mm -hmm. when you were talking. Mm -hmm. So the analogy... 
might work. Well, I think it does. I mean, the first chapter of the Bible is God speaking and that which he speaks coming into being. Um, that pattern doesn't, he doesn't deviate from that pattern um, throughout Scripture. That's, that's how God accomplishes his sovereign will uh, all throughout is through him speaking and bringing, uh, bringing to pass what he has foreordained. So we essentially have a different view of authority than the Catholic Church does. Um, that uh, essentially we do not have a, a human infallible interpretation of the scriptures. Um, that's correct. And uh, we would place the church under the authority of the scriptures, whereas the Catholic Church would place the church, primarily the Pope, in authority over the scriptures. Is that is that where we're coming to? Seems like they might place it. They say it's equal, right? But yeah, as Protestants would say, that's logically that can't be the case. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a Latin phrase for. Our view, do we have? Righto? Correcto? Correcto. <laughs> Correcto mundo. Biblical? Sola Scriptura. Oh. Yeah. Say yeah. that again. Sola Scriptura. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but if we could summarize our view compared to the Catholic view, um, somebody want to take that out there? Uh, by the way, beating a dead horse actually makes it more digestible because it tenderizes it. So there may be some, <laughs> some use to beating the dead horse if you're going to digest something, which we're trying to do here. You we are trying to digest. So go ahead. <laughs> Someone with more. We just lost an entire another group of viewers. Lost the equestrian. Horse lovers. Horse lovers. I, but uh, viewers, don't get me wrong. I love horses. He's got a cowboy hat on. Uh, I love the medium rare with potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did anybody forget what I was saying? You were asking uh, if someone could give a summation of Sola Scriptura versus the uh, Roman Catholic uh, view of authority yeah. in the church. Mm-hmm. Well, the Protestant Sola Scriptura it comes from the Latin for Scripture alone. Basically, Scripture alone is the authority in the church for matters of faith and practice. It is the ultimate authority over which no other authority uh, can precise because it is the word of God and it comes from God. Um, I think I've heard the three, for, in terms of Roman Catholic uh, authority, I've heard three terms thrown around. There's uh, scripture, tradition, and magisterium. So basically, scripture is an authority, as we just said. Then there's tradition, which, according to the Roman Catholic Catechism, goes hand in hand with scripture. It is the it is the tradition that is not uh, that basically they would say is summed up in scripture uh, that is also passed down orally and through other means down through the church ages. So there's apostolic tradition and then there's ecclesiastical tradition that has same similar authority. It, um, it preserves traditions and scriptures that uh, have been passed down through the ages that may not be contained specifically or uh, well, I mean, there's, for example, the, uh, Immaculate Conception of Mary is a tradition of, of the uh, ecclesiastical tradition that they would say is supported by from Scripture, but is more supported in church tradition, if that makes sense, ecclesiastical history. And then the third one, magisterium, I guess, would be the uh, the laws and the words of the Pope as presented to the church as canon. 
well, not as canon, but as um, these are, thus says the Pope, I guess you could say. Sure. Um, the edicts and the uh, councils and the catechisms mm-hmm. and the Pope's personal translation of Scripture, I guess. And just adding to that, the uh, Westminster Confession of, Case, uh, of Faith, chapter 110 sets forth, and I won't read the whole thing here, but basically it says that the final authority for the church is the Word of God. Yeah. And the difference would be between the Protestant and Catholic view is that the Catholics would say that the final authority for the church is the church um, and the church's <clears throat> interpretation of the word. And so just to put it in simple terms, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the distinction. Sure. Uh, so piggybacking off of that, um, you know, we're, we're uh, all Protestants around the table here. Um, and we talked a little bit about how our view differs from the Roman Catholic view. So we have multiple different denominations, um, and we we would say that the Bible is our ultimate authority. So do we then, first I think maybe a good question to ask to this, and somebody else has another question they want to throw out, but, but one I thought of was, um, do we then dump tradition entirely? This tradition of no guidance to us whatsoever are we just all individual popes deciding what the Bible has to say? I think if you get rid of tradition and you also get rid of some of history, you can just redo and recreate a lot of the heresies uh, that have already been established as uh, being untrue. And um, it's good to know history, to know where the church has come from, to know what's been said about Christ, uh, that he, the claims that he uh, wasn't God or that he was just a man or just where the councils that have gone on so that you don't keep rehashing them. And oftentimes in the new just cults or uh, a lot of the new fads that come out in churches, it's just things that have already been done and declared wrong. They just keep coming up. So mm-hmm. I would say to look at tradition to see where it's helpful and to use tradition as best as you can with what goes with scripture and not just throw it away because it has a lot of good use for the today's church. You can think of the uh, teachings of tradition as long distance <clears throat> mentorship. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you can glean from Calvin is just as valuable as what you can glean from a uh, older Christian teaching you from the Bible directly. So to say that you don't need any of those is like you said, is to make each of mm-hmm. us our own individual popes. I think it's a misunderstanding of the Reformation to assume that they were entirely against tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the exact opposite is true. Um, the encouragement, as I understand it, from most of the Reformers was that men should be in submission to the traditions um, that are set forth by wise and godly leaders in the Church so far as those traditions align with and accord to the Word of God. And so tradition is not a bad thing. And in fact, I think we should have a heart of humility toward traditions that are set before us, especially within the church, to examine them, not to outright reject, but to examine them and see whether or not these are, in fact, wise interpretations and understandings of the things that are godly and good for God's people. Sounds a little bit like um, the discussion is could use a little bit of touching on what is the role of the church today in terms of doctrine. In other words, some people don't believe in church membership. Um, there are different models of church leadership in Protestant churches, like 
the Moses model where the pastor is the head guy and the elders are kind of like a board of directors who support the pastor. Um, there's the Presbyterian Reformed model where you have elders who are shepherding the flock and the church membership. Anybody want to talk about that in terms of the church and doctrine and creeds or confessions, which some people are dead set against? <clears throat> but we, we aren't. Why aren't we? I guess just to give a brief word and someone can just expand on it. Uh, I think that a lot of people have a, a bad view of confessions or creeds just because they don't under, understand exactly what they are or what they're saying. That they're seeing in, the, in what the uh, creeds are saying as, uh, oh, that's something outside of scripture. And I just want to hold the scripture like uh, my only creed is Christ and that's all I need. And it just seems like it's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding of, of what the, the creeds and confessions are saying. For most people. So, I mean, if we have if we have thousands of years of people interpreting the scripture, it would be wise for us to look back on what they said um, so that we can compare. Has anybody else thought the way that I'm thinking about this passage, about this particular doctrine? Were any of those people condemned as heretics and what was the ruling against them? So, you know, that that would be the direction I hear us going. Is that about right? Somebody want to add to that? I would definitely agree with that. <clears throat> the fact that we haven't had the uh, prayer of Jabez being um, talked about as a mantra for the last few thousand years should have put concern in the writers of that book right away. You'll probably edit that out. <laughs> so unless, uh, we lost another unless group. Unless you were alienating now Roman Catholics and prayer of Jabez people. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. So what, like, what, do you, what do you do when you come across the text and you come to this conclusion and then you, you're curious to see if anyone else has had it in history? What do you do when you find that really no one else has had this view that, that you have? It's a good so question. Is there a place there, I think there is, for submitting to the um, shepherding, the leadership that God has put over you in the church that you are attending, if you attend the church, in terms of listening to what they have to say? That would help you in your own, and I don't know if we discussed this last time, hermeneutical spiral, so to speak. The idea that as you grow in your understanding of scripture, you eventually can, well, you need to change your paradigms of what you thought before to adapt them to what God is saying instead of to what you think you want God to be saying. So you spiral upward and upward as you grow in, hopefully, understanding of the scriptures to a cl truer and truer understanding of the scriptures. And you get what I'm saying there? So by submitting to the leadership of the church in that way, they are helping you grow in your understanding of what God actually says. Does but what if sense? it's a bad church? Then they will help you grow. <laughs> I've, grown, I've grown due to bad things before. It may not, yeah. it may not happen as well or as quickly growth I think, I think there's a lot of overlap um, in what we're discussing from multiple perspectives so one would be last time we talked about we never I don't think we used the word postmodernism but that's what we were discussing essentially is that there's no foundation of truth outside of myself my own experience my own interpretation and to take an attitude of submission 
uh, to an authority within a local church as a teacher, as a spiritual teacher in your life, um, automatically uh, would require a submission to an authority outside of yourself. So that's one area of, of, of opportunity for us to discuss further. But there's also the area of um, submitting yourself to the process of actually studying out God's Word faithfully. Um, we cannot just simply go and surround ourselves with teachers who, as Paul says, tickle our ears, um, people who tell us what we want to hear. But if we're going to be a Christian, if we're followers of Christ, then we need to receive the whole counsel of God, um, not just those parts that are comfortable, not just those parts that are easy. So another problem is that one of the, the other reason that I think some people tend to kick back against confessions is actually because we find ourselves in an age where spiritual maturity is is very much lacking. And a proper and thorough understanding of the Christian faith is very rarely set forth for people. And so when you hear someone who has a great understanding of something, what I've found in my life, and not only with Christianity, but really in any discipline of life, when you come across someone who knows something so well, and you yourself are maybe at a very entry-level stage, sometimes what they're saying to you can sound foolish. Um, and you can automatically reject it and think, man, this person's off their rocker. What are they talking about? Amillennialism? <laughs> crazy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Only years think. later, as you yourself grow and develop, to realize, oh, wow, they actually had a very thorough and good understanding of something. I was just too foolish to recognize it as the wisdom that it actually was. And in my opinion, that's what happens with many of the faithful confessions throughout history. Um, it's not that we should look at them uh, and accept them wholesale completely, but we should learn from them and allow them to be a launch pad for us to further study out the doctrines that are set forth in God's holy word. One one thing that I might bring in just to sort of clarify uh, what we're talking about, you know, just asking the question, why are there so many denominations? And then letting that shape can we be assured that we've come to a correct understanding of certain passages? Why don't we make it a little less abstract by maybe taking on what has been a point of debate within the church that uh, legitimate Christians have been on opposite sides of um, and sort of hash that out and, and you think? Okay, let's see here. <laughs> Should we start with something a let's, little... Let's start with uh, eschatology, baptism, could go to Calvinism, Arminianism. I think ba- baptism oh might just be a good one. Dispensationalism. Which you would do, a, like always, you do a better job of explaining why there's the different views of baptism. And mainly, just if I could say it simply, it's just a different understanding of uh, how the covenants work and... The Old Testament and New Testament, how some people view them as two different uh, testaments that really don't go well together at all, or uh, it's just uh, one continuous, uh, not so much an old and a new, but one that uh, operated in a, in a different system mm-hmm. at one time than it does under Christ. Um, I'm yeah. trying to figure out how to answer, put that to your, sure. your question. So a, a view of, of covenant continuation versus a brand new covenant. So, I mean, you could, if you want to put labels on that, you have covenant theology, and then you have, like, new covenant theology. Um, you know, is this, 
a brand new covenant we're in as the church and we throw the old one out or is this a renewed covenant? Yeah. And to be clear, there is a brand of theology called new covenant theology, right. which is different than reformed Baptist covenant theology. Okay. Just to be, just to let our listeners know we're aware so that reformed Baptist also don't get alienated because we have some <laughs> fine reformed Baptists among us and we won't say who's who yet. <laughs> 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 but yeah, but so, I get your point. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, um, and maybe, maybe we want to dive into the differences a little bit, but I let's, guess to start, yeah. Can we just do, uh, like, uh, let's say limited atonement. Okay. Limited atonement. That's a lot easier to deal with. Yeah. With just. With the time that we have. Yeah. Baptism could take 400 years. Oh yeah. Oh, we, I mean, it's been that long already. <laughs> <laughs> Many debates in this very room. So, limited atonement. Uh, you have some people saying Jesus died for everyone. And they'll cite John 3.16. Uh, or 1 Timothy 4.10, mm-hmm. something like that, which I had just just, just, just one second. Yeah. Um, okay. For this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope in the li- set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Mm-hmm. Especially of those who believe. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow, that's weird. So it sounds like he's everybody's savior, and there's some special way he's the savior of those who believe. Some people might take that to mean that Jesus died for absolutely everyone. And then there might be that or another verse cited, and then for the limited atonement side, someone might cite... The whole Old Testament. Okay. (laughs) Showing that... All of the sacrifices, mm. all of the intercession, and everything was effective for the people for whom it was made, but no one else. And it was purposely done for those people and no one outside of the camp of Israel. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Uh, somebody have something from the New Testament? For as many as God appointed unto salvation, he called them to himself. I mean, John 6, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. No one uh, comes to me, lets the Father who sent me draws him. So we have Christians that disagree about about the nature of the atonement, um, the, you know, extent. the extent of the atonement. Uh, first of all, maybe we might want to lay down the question, does this matter and to what extent? Do you want the answer or should we just lay the question I'll, well, just lay it on the table and usually <laughs> I would prefer to have an answer does this matter would. does it matter yes it okay. matters does it make you a non-Christian if you differ one way or the other no not necessarily I mean if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again etc then you're not a Christian but doctrines like this aren't part of the the kernel of the Christian faith mm-hmm. by which you cling to Christ for salvation. But they do affect how you think about Christ, which in effect, if you're thinking wrongly, then you're being an idolater, which none of us are ever not idolaters, but we try not to be. So it does matter to that degree. And also it affects how you live in, <clears throat> in a way. It, in my in my opinion, limited atonement, and I like particular redemption better because it better expresses it maybe than limited atonement. 
but by by looking at the Bible, the whole Bible, and seeing that God over and over acts to save his people, and he surely does. He doesn't leave any one of his people out of his saving acts. By looking at the Bible and seeing that, it really assures me that um, God does save me. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to have faith. Um, it's not a work. Like I don't have to work it up out of myself because God gives me faith. And where it really plays out practically for me is it eliminates what ifs. I should have done. Yes, there's a place for mourning your failures, but providentially when God works, you know he does it for your good and for his glory. Therefore, you can't you should not go back and um, wish you could have that to do over again and just cry about it all the time. It's been very helpful in my own life. So we have anything to add to that or something to say about that? I think kind of going back to your question on the denominations and why there's so many. Um, Tom, I think the last episode you alluded to <clears throat> just sin. Um, so would you be able to kind of maybe give us another explanation of how maybe sin has something to do with the reason that there's, I don't, I don't even know how many different Protestant denominations are, but what does sin have to do with, with that? Well, that's a tall order, but I will try to put together some useful thoughts. Um, because of our, so, so those who are in Christ are redeemed, but often theologians have used the, the terminology already, but not yet. So we are completely redeemed. We are completely justified, and yet we are not completely sanctified in the sense that we have not been remade entirely into the image of Christ. That is a process that God is working out and promises to complete uh, in us. Um, but the, the difficulty is that sin still has an appeal to the redeemed person uh, this side of heaven. Temptation still gains the victory over us sometimes. And as a result, there are times when we may be looking into Scripture and we might find ourselves looking for what we want to find uh, in our old nature rather than what God um, would have us find that is true and pure uh, and holy. And so we can resist um, the truth of God's Word and the ways that God would change us and continue to sanctify us. We can resist those things. And sometimes we resist them without realizing we're doing so. And uh, the reality is, is that that's not something that some Christians do. That's something that all Christians do. Um, we are all resistant to the will of God in different ways. And, and many times it's something that we're unaware of. But that is the primary reason, according to my understanding, that we do have so many different interpretations from faithful Christians who are truly believers and will be in heaven for all eternity. So related to that, us who are persuaded that particular redemption is biblical, interacting with those who are persuaded that it is unbiblical, how do we work that out between each other? Well, um, in my experience, usually it comes from what Paul, uh, what Paul, you're Tom, uh, what, <laughs> what Tom was Tom, talking about AKA was the Paul. tendency to put our point of view above God's. The word Bible. I remember having a conversation with someone who said, "Well, God is love," and he was basing his understanding of what lo God's love is on his own experience to say, "Well, God is love, and therefore not saving everyone is unloving. Therefore, God can must be saving all people." So he was basically 
putting his own understanding above that of scripture and saying, what I'm saying is right. As Tom was saying, my authority trumps what God says in his word. Therefore, this is how I interpret scripture. And because his experience said love is a certain thing, love is saving all people. Therefore, God must save all people. I don't know if that helps. So how did you uh, interact with him? Um, I challenged him on the issue of authority. I said, well, who is an authority on this matter? Is it your experience or is it God's word? You're clearly here to study God's word. Therefore, you must think it has some source in him or some foundation in his word. Therefore, I called him to decide. You need to decide who has more to say on the issue, this Bible that you declare is God's word or your own experience. Something I'd like to add to that. Um, you know, you, you touched on a presupposition. Your friend had a specific definition and limitations in mind to the parameters of the word love. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just tell a story to sort of illustrate presuppositions and what we're talking about there for the average listener. Um, if we have listeners, um, but see where I grew up, we were three miles from our nearest neighbor and we so rarely saw anybody on the narrow gravel road that we drove on that uh, everybody just kind of took to waving at everybody you would pass by. So, you know, you could be pulling several tons of, of livestock and you'd be driving towards somebody on a road that was about 10 feet wide and they're pulling several tons of grain. And uh, it's just good manners, even though you're driving about a combined speed of 100 miles an hour past each other to lift one hand off the wheel so you can wave it at this guy who's driving toward you. And uh, my dad, uh, I remember riding with him one time, and there was this other guy driving towards him, and my dad waved at him, and he wondered out loud, why doesn't that guy ever wave? And every time I tell that story to somebody from a big city, they're just confused. <laughs> you know, like, why Why do you make it such a priority to wave at anybody? So he interpreted um, that guy's behavior in a particular way. So that was an example of a, a presupposition. If this guy's waving at me, I don't have it in my capacity to think that, well, maybe he just wants to be a safe driver and put both hands on the wheel. Um, you know, it, it's more... You know, this is the way the world works, mm-hmm. you know. So, is that, anybody else want to say anything about presuppositions? That's a good illustration. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> should file that one away in your to-be-preaching, or to-illustration-for-preaching box. Yeah, I used it in a paper once. So. And the presupposition presuppositions ties back to what Josh was saying about the hermeneutical spiral. We all come to the Bible with certain presuppositions that we hold to be true and in a sense hold to be an authority. And when we need to have that place of submission that he was talking about where we read God's word and that may say something different than our presupposition. And then we go back to our presupposition and change it based off of God's word. Then we go back to God's word and have that continual spiral upward. Right. And one of the scariest things, just throwing this in there, uh, is when your worldview comes crashing down because you see something in the Bible that goes against exactly what you believe. I mean, uh, just for example, maybe God's sovereignty uh, and election uh, coming from naturally. I believe everyone have a, would have a view that I, well, I decide who I, I would come to God because I want to come to God. And 
I have the freedom to do so. And, and when you see in scripture that uh, it is God who, who does it, man, you can just go through some some very nerve wracking and <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. scary days. Just, oh my goodness, this is such a huge mountainous truth. But then the choice comes, am I going to submit to this truth of what it's saying? Or am I going to stick to this worldview, this view of reality that I have? And uh, that can just be one of the greatest things that you can do is submit to what the, the Bible says and not to what you think or feel. I was just going to say, yeah, I remember the first time someone told me that my good works and my belief was not enough. I was angry at that person. I was angry at that truth. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. And then I read it in scripture and I'm like, well, I guess it's maybe not so ridiculous. And I look back on that and I thank God that that person said that to me. Because being in that place where I thought I was good enough is a terrifying place to be. Yeah. So there might be two things we want to say about presupposition. we got to wrap it up here in a little bit. But um, dealing with other people who have presuppositions different mm-hmm. than ours um, and deciding when do we want to engage that and when do we need to engage that and when do we want to just allow that to stand. I think I could try to answer that a little bit from Josh's question a minute ago about how do you handle something like, just as an example, limited atonement. Yeah. And some, you know, how do you engage a conversation with someone who doesn't believe that that's a proper understanding of what the scriptures teach? And, and I think that there's different ways at different times. So there's no probably real flat answer for this question, but what I would do with that person is hopefully I would have a relationship with him. And so we'd be able to discuss together in a very peaceful way. Um, I would never want to make an ultimatum out of a doctrine that is not having to do with someone's eternal standing. And as Josh already mentioned, you can, you can believe one way or the other unlimited atonement and still be in heaven. So it's not something that I would be, want to be forceful on or, or, really sort of demand, if you will, that someone uh, change their view on. However, my plea to that person would be that I believe that God has given us his word for our good, for our edification, for growth and maturity in our faith. And I believe that both of us should want to study his word toward the end that we have a faithful and true understanding. And I would encourage that person by saying, why don't we study this together? Because if I'm mistaken, it's, it's for my benefit and my good to arrive at your conclusion. And the same for you. If you are mistaken, then it's for your good and your benefit to arrive at the conclusion that I have. So why don't we go together humbly in submission as we started our, our uh, podcast today by saying the Bible has the final authority. It's the final authority on all matters of faith and life for the Christian. So why don't we submit ourselves together to God's Word and study out to see what's really there. The... Um a an interesting thought maybe we don't have time to discuss it but it plays into the topic well at least the topic that we said was the topic how do we know that we've arrived at truth how do we know what is true if you have two godly men that you know personally let's say who differ on let's just say limited atonement since we've used that example how do you know which one is correct if both of them can go to the scripture and show you things maybe what's the overarching uh, theme or uh, answer to the question that's in scripture, not just in one text, not just in one proof text, but in the uh, from Genesis to Revelation, is it going in line with that whole story of God redeeming uh, fallen sinful people through Christ, or 
Is this something that's going in a, in a different direction so, than that? So to put it another way, what method did they use to come to their conclusion? Hermeneutics, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually wondering, yes, that's correct. But also getting to into the topic, and maybe we could cover it later, since we probably don't have time this time. But the idea that, uh, like in John 10, <clears throat> I'm the good shepherd, who hears Jesus' voice and who listens to him? It's uh, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Um, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, in verse 16, and they will listen to my voice, etc. And that's that's in John multiple times. I don't, there's a better verse for that, I'm sure, but that idea of us hearing Jesus' voice, how's that play into how we think about things? And like I said, maybe we could address it in depth later at a different time. But the idea that God teaches us, God teaches us. And if we are his sheep, we will know his voice. Not perfectly now, but we can know his voice. So I guess wrapping it up, you know, if we could all... uh, if I could just lay something out there as, as a, uh, I don't know, a proposition, if you will, or a summation, um, we, we can be assured that we have arrived at truth just, you know, since God has, uh, declared that, you know, his sheep will hear, uh, his voice at the same time. Uh, there are certain things that legitimate Christians are going to come to different conclusions on and maybe even, to the point of breaking into different denominations over. Um, But ultimately, so many of those things, uh, people can have great fellowship with somebody on the other side of the aisle. Um, So I guess, um, go ahead. I mean, that's a great observation. Yeah. The question could be asked, why do people get so upset when someone disagrees with their view? Uh, I think it comes back to the issue of sin. So the reason, for instance, taking Jeremy, if you don't mind me using your example you shared a minute ago when someone said that your good works weren't enough, uh, if if I could use the metaphor, it shook you. Mm -hmm. Why did it shake you? It shook you because the foundation that you had built yourself upon was weak. It was shakable, right? Um, And so when people raise questions about things that matter to us greatly and we find ourselves shaking, what we tend to do is go into a defense mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we should perhaps do is have the humility to say, why am I trusting in something that's so easily shaken? And it should cause us to go back and really question our presuppositions rather than try to immediately go into a defense of them. Um, we want to build our lives, especially when it comes to eternal things, on that which is unshakable. And God's word provides an unshakable foundation for us. However, we may not have fully apprehended that unshakability in our own faith yet. We may not have matured to that place. But even if we return and question our foundation and go and study more and learn more, it will only serve to fortify it and make us more resolved in that which is absolutely true. So maybe one more question. We just want to wrap it up after that. So how big of a problem is it that there are so many different denominations? I think in the book itself uh, that we're reading about, the reader understand, says that uh, what misinterpreting is a is a sin. 
And that's just uh, that's how, so that kind of goes to weigh your question a little bit more. The fact that there are just so many different views and how that's sinful. And yet God uses that sin not only to um, uh, protect the church in a way from heresy, but he also uses that sin to uh, help us along in our hermeneutical spiral, as it were, as we yeah. discuss different things with, with each other and get closer and closer, hopefully, to a biblical understanding of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, think of the great creeds that we have in the Reformed tradition and how those were a response to something that we would consider a wrong heretical t- teaching. Uh, so, yeah, that that's definitely a good point. The sin, that kind of misinterpretation has always brought the church to a place where they f- concretely find, figure out where they stand on. You have the Nicene Creed. You have uh, statements against Marcion by people like uh, um, Eusebius. They've always acted to strengthen the church in many ways. So maybe if we could sum it up, you know, God will bring his church to himself uh, and he will give them sufficient understanding in order to have relation with him and salvation. Um, I think the Westminster Confession sums it up pretty well. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 7, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Do we want to comment on that and then we'll close? Due use of ordinary means may come to a sufficient understanding of them. That that makes it sound like we don't have to ask the Pope for an opinion. And I don't think we have to have absolutely everything understood, but we are making progress, and maybe these different opinions aren't always as big of a deal as someone makes them out to be. So, what? Go to church, listen to preaching, take the sacraments, partake in the sacraments, pray, read your Bible. Don't reject uh, um, people from the past and uh, catechisms and confessions. Probably if we had everything understood, we'd be proud of it. (laughs) And maybe it's really good that we uh, don't understand absolutely everything, but we can understand enough. That's right. Well, I understand everything, and I'm very humble. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody. Peace out.